Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. The Bowery Boys episode 141, New York's Beer History. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a very special episode of the show. Now, Tom is not here this week, so I've decided to do a few experimental, very different things here with the show. And what a topic to do it on. Today's topic is New York City's beer history. First of all, I would like to introduce you to today's guest host, a very close friend of mine, someone I've known for a really long time, photographer and filmmaker Scott Nyergis. Hello. How's it going? Good. Is everything good there? Microphone set up? Uh, uh, microphone set up, comfortable, have a beer open and ready to go. <laughs> the New York Historical Society this summer is having a brand new exhibition on New York's history of beer, of brewing, of selling it, of drinking it. I was there with Scott. Um, we were there, what, like about a month ago? Mm, just and, a couple weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, we hung out and we talked about the exhibit. It was a really great exhibit, but then it seemed like there was even more of the story that could be told, especially because you have a very specific interest and focus on Brooklyn history and, and, and specifically Bushwick history, correct? That's right. And you were sitting there regaling me with all these really interesting details and facts about breweries that were in this neighborhood. There were like dozens, correct? There were at one time, I think, more about two dozen breweries in the Bushwick area. And in the New York City area, of course, this was the 19th century where Manhattan and Brooklyn were still separate cities. There were over 100 different breweries. I mean, this is an incredibly rich history that the New York City area has. We are on location at a very special... Uh, we figured since we were going to be talking about beer, you uh, said to me, said, hey, you live in Bushwick and uh, you enjoy beer. Let, let's take it on the road and talk about beer in Brooklyn. We're actually on location in Bushwick and within just a few, few steps blocks of, of where there used to be several breweries, as a matter of fact, so including this- the last one to close in... Brooklyn in the 70s. So we are in the midst of history as we talk about it. And you'll also even hear a rumbling subway because we're right next to a subway station. So this is a truly ambient special experience. So raise a toast as we begin our tale of New York City's beer history. My beer is Rheingold, the dry beer. East side, west side, and up, down, and down. Rheingold extra dry beer is the beer of great renown. Rheingold, 
Bush Avenue. From Jersey scenes way up to Queens, they sing as millions do. My beer is right, golden dry beer. Friendly, fresh, thing and happily dry beer. Dry means clean and it's clear. Dry means thirst, quenching beer. Join the millions who buy Rhine gold beer. Extra dry. So that fine little ditty from the 1950s that uh, we just heard it was a Rheingold beer commercial. Uh, Rheingold sort of was in their heydays in the 1950s, but they were one of the few remaining beer makers in New York City by That's that time. Right. So before we begin, Scott, could I know that you have a specific interest in beer history. I'm kind of new to the liquor history timelines here. Uh, what, what particularly about this topic is kind of interesting to you? Well, apart from the fact that I just enjoy drinking beer, um, <laughs> I grew up in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And of course, St. Louis is not only the home of Anheuser-Busch, but like a lot of cities... Cincinnati, Chicago to a lesser extent, Milwaukee certainly was a home of German Americans, and there was a lot of beer there at one time. The important thing for us to preface with all of this is that New York's beer history is a little bit of an alternative history because, of course, the mainstream beers that people drink today, Budweiser, Coors, Pabst, uh, those are all Midwestern companies and were started by German families that moved to the Midwest and were able to stake a claim in that far more than New York brewers were able to. That's true, although it really wasn't until the late 1800s that the companies like Anheuser-Busch or Miller really started to become more dominant. In the late 1870s, 1880s, there were New York brewers who were some of the top brewers in the region. Believe it or not, some historians can claim that New York's beer history is actually can be traced 400 years, literally to the date of 1612, when the explorer Adrian Block sailed into the Hudson River area and made a tiny, like maybe a couple small log huts at the very tip of Manhattan. And in one of these little buildings produced the very first beer. In fact, some legends have it that the first European male to be born in New Amsterdam, which was that the Dutch colony that came from this original settlement, was born in that log hut, a man named Jean Vigne, and became a brewer. So literally the beginnings, the seed, the germination of the beginnings of New York here are saturated in beer. (laughs) And you also have to remember that certainly, at least by colonial times still, people drank beer because the water was not pure. And it was also even seen, it was hearty. Like it was, it was one way in which to get it proper was, food back in the day. It was essentially the way you got your carbs. So by 1633, the settlement of New Amsterdam actually had their very first brewery in a place called the Market Field, which is today on Whitehall Street. So that was the first city-sanctioned brewery. Around this time, of course, the settlement got its first taverns. In fact, the first city hall, New Amsterdam's city hall, was uh, actually a multi-purpose building that included selling beer. Which just shows uh, (laughs) beer and politics have a very uh, long and storied history in New York. Well, it's interesting because in these early eras, and especially in the colonial era, business and pleasure mixed in a way that would seem really strange to us if they did it in that fashion today, I think. 
Now, the Dutch were expelled by the British in 1664. A lot of the Dutch people still stayed in the colony, of course, and many of them brewed for the new masters here. And then, of course... The British course, enjoyed a good drink, too. The English had their own c- customs, exactly. Uh, the British colony even kind of legitimized beer making. They required beer operators to have a license. The Brits were kind of sticklers for regulation. Now, beer was, of course, drank, but there were a lot of other liquors that also gained prominence at this time. So things like rum, because you know, they had a big... The sugar big, trade up from the Caribbean. Right, they had a trading route there. To move forward in history, by the time the British were expelled from New York and America in 1783, beer in this country was principally made in New York City and in Philadelphia. Yes. Although the output was extremely small. And again, we're talking places that would make beer themselves. They would make it in their basement or their backyards. We're not talking about any kind of distribution system After the Revolutionary War, the city expanded northward, of course. One of the major sources of its drinking water was this freshwater pond that sat around where this civic center area of New York is today. That would be Collect Pond. Um, Tom and I have a podcast, episode 50, just on Collect Pond. It's a fascinating idea to think of this bucolic little pond where people would sit by the side of the water and picnic or, or what have you. And this is where the drinking water came from. Unfortunately, by the beginning of the 19th century, you also had all of these industries collecting around Collect Pond, including many early breweries. In 1792, Collard's Brewery actually sat on the banks of Collect Pond, and they, of course, could use the water to produce their product. Of course, so were tanners, all these kinds of like kind of pollutants um, were being thrown into Collect Pond. So soon it was a very so undes- you were undesirable. Really quite sure what the secret ingredient <laughs> in the beer formula. It, the secret was in the water. Um, yeah, and it might have had like a weird leather taste. It might have to tasted it. a little horsey, but you know, if you're drunk <laughs> enough, you're really not going to care. By the way, that brewery, that Coolhards Brewery, the building itself would stay for many, many, many years afterwards. Even when Collect Pond was drained by a canal, which is today's Canal Street, that pond would be drained. That building would stand there for many decades afterwards and would be in the center of the old neighborhood of Five Points. And that building would be called the Old Brewery. And some of the most sinful, most debauched, most criminal activities occurred in this building, in the Old Brewery. It was finally demolished in the mid-19th century. You would have very small breweries that would produce product and distribute them to local individual taverns, um, which were still mixing business and pleasure. There was this amazing place called the Bull's Head Tavern, which is near the foot of the Manhattan Bridge today, at the end of the 18th century. This is basically where farmers would bring down their cattle to sell. And so it would be a mixture of business and pleasure, but it would also be, be a place where people would enjoy a fine brew. What we're speaking about here, I should add, is this is this is an ale that we're talking about here. Uh, it's a thicker, darker, had a higher alcohol content than most of the beer that we're going to speak about. A crucial decade to the history of beer here in New York were the 1840s. First of all, New York was facing a water crisis by this time because the city was greatly expanding and they needed to find fresh, clean sources of water. So it was in 1842 that the Croton Aqueduct System was created that brought water down from upstate New York City. 
Also by this time was the invention of the steam engine. And of course, this would facilitate the development of the Industrial Revolution. This, of course, would also help with the production of beer. But almost the most important element that came around the 1840s was the growth of immigration into the New York area and one particular nationality that came over in large numbers beginning in the 1840s, and that would be the Germans. German Americans. Well, yes, it was the Germans. I would say the real birth of American beer industry began with the mass numbers of Germans that came over. Although there was, of course, a lot of Irish that came over by this time as well, the key thing to remember is that a lot of Irish that immigrated over were very destitute. They, were, they came over because there was this famine. They didn't have a lot of money or a lot of possessions. They were, in a sense, the tired, poor, huddled masses. Corre- yes, exactly. The Germans that came over were a little bit more... Wealthy. They were they a little... had some means. Um, they were a little bit more enterprising, and they essentially were essentially sort of the merchant class. Yes, tradesmen. They are actually many of them had specific crafts that were new to America, uh, which allowed them to succeed. One of the most iconic examples, which I think I bring up a lot on the show, is Steinway Heinrich Steinway, a name known the world over for his pianos. He came over at this very period as well. So because of all of these factors coming in, um, by 1845, New York State would have over 100 breweries, most of them in the New York City region. And that would, of course, include Brooklyn, which at the time, it was still a separate city. But what made their beer different than what was already available? Well, they brought a different kind of beer. They brought the lager. It was an easier-to-make brew. It lasted longer, could be stored longer. It didn't get stale like ale. If you just left a a mug of ale out and you didn't drink it for like 30 minutes, you probably didn't want to touch it after that. Lagers could be stored and transported. It did need to be chilled. And in fact, early brewers would have to situate near caves, like yeah, natural caves. It really wasn't until the end of the 19th century when primitive refrigeration techniques started to become available that breweries started appearing south of the Mason-Dixon line. Mm-hmm. So let's discuss some of the early brewers that came in and settled in the New York and Brooklyn areas at this time. One that we'll carry on through the rest of the story here was a brewery that was owned by Frederick and Maximilian Schaefer. Uh, they were, uh, it would be the longest running brewery in New York City history uh, when cl- would close in the 1970s, but got a start here in the mid-19th century. The brothers immigrated to New York in 1838 and within a few years opened their first brewery on Broadway at 19th Street. Which is now where I think Paragon Sports is or something <laughs> think, like yeah, that. Yeah, there's like a movie theater right there. Um, within a few years, they opened an even, even larger plant uh, in the Chelsea area on 7th Avenue. And then by 18. 50, this is incredible, they built an even larger manufacturing plant on Park Avenue and 51st Street, which was a completely different area back then than, of course, it was today. I mean, today we, we associate it with midtown business people, tourists. But back then, it was railroad tracks that were that headed down into the city. And it made sense to actually build these industries there. In fact, right next door was the piano plant of Henry Steinway. The Schaefers constructed these 250 feet deep caverns for cold storage. They dug down into the bedrock. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, this is where uh, today where St. Bartholomew's is today, that beautiful church that sits right on Park <laughs> Avenue. But it's funny to think that this is, used to be a brewery. The Schaefers rented caverns on the East River. And that what they would do is they would fill up with their product. And then during the winters, when the East River would get cold, they would cut pieces of ice so that they, they were able to keep their product cold. 
Which is kind of amazing because I don't think uh, the East River freezes anymore. No, no, no. I think this, I think the city produces too much energy and heat for yes. that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we're talking the era before modern refrigeration. So river ice was actually very crucial to the manufacturing of beer. So they would stay in this location for over six decades when eventually the land became just too valuable to have a gigantic brewery here. If you want to talk about the emergence of uh, brewing, one man, George Errett. Uh, he was born in 1835. He came to America in 1857, worked his way through, I believe, other smaller breweries, and then finally opened his own in 1866. And this would be the Hellgate Brewery? Yes, the Hell's Gate jo- Brewery. In fact, it was located uh, between 2nd and 3rd Avenues at 92nd and 93rd Streets, right by the area called Hellgate. Right. Now, Hell's Gate, Hell's Gate was a confluence of waters in the East River where lo- the Long Island Sound, the Harlem River, and the East River all sort of came uh, Sort of the, tip of the northern tip of Roosevelt Island. Hell's Gate made it very difficult for sailors and those trying to traverse the waters because it made it very choppy. However, it also gave that particular area its name, Hell's Gate. But essentially, he, by 1867, the brewery was open. He was brewing beer that he considered to be very similar to the lagers that uh, came from Munich, Germany, which, uh, of course, he and his family knew a lot about. From a 1903 account of this brewer, quote, Mr. George Errett, from the very beginning, aimed at the brewing of a beer as nearly like the best quality of Munich lager as the difference between our water and that of the River Isar would admit. Now, the River Isar is in... Austria, Bavaria, Germany. So essentially, he was trying to recreate what they were drinking back home. Exactly. And it must have succeeded because by the late 1870s, he was the uh, number one brewer in the country, which is kind of hard to believe today. But it was he was brewing 300, 400,000 barrels a year, which is pretty impressive. I should mention or add that this area would soon become a vocal point for German Americans in New York City it would be called Yorkville. And over the next decades, the streets would be lined with German beer halls and uh, essentially, if you wanted to get the German experience in Manhattan, this was where you went to. Mm-hmm. This and Kleine Deutschland, of course, down in the East Village. So these were sort of the two central areas uh, for German Americans uh, around the end of the 19th century. At least in Manhattan. And we'll get to Brooklyn later. Mm-hmm. It was a remarkable operation. The man had the top, he was essentially the top brewer in the U.S. from the late 1870s until the early 1890s. And it really wasn't until that point when the technology for distribution and refrigeration was available that the Midwestern Mm brewers, the Bushes, started to eclipse him. But even then, he managed to uh, stay in the top five brewers until around, I'd say, the First World War. Before we jump into World War I, because I have an incredible story about George here, but I, I think this is a really fascinating detail. He didn't take water from the Croton Reservoir. He actually built an artesian well. This sounds like a modern concept for a, a craft brewer now. An artesian I, I well. actually <laughs> think that there was, was it like hams or something? One of these Midwestern brewers used to talk about the artesian waters. Mm-hmm. He drilled down into the bedrock and had his very own water pumping station. A lot of money and a lot of resources to make a beer that was just distinctive from everybody from everyone else. And so because of that, he did become New York's best-known brewer. Now, to flash forward a little bit uh, to 1914, George made an untimely trip 
to Germany. World War One occurred, and it was not a good time to be a German-American. No, it, he actually had to stay there for four years, um, so f- during lots of the war. And while gone, of course, in America, there was a lot of massive anti-German sentiment, people distrusting German-Americans uh, during this period. The government thought that he was funding pro-German propaganda, and so his entire financial estate was seized by the government. Oh. He got it straightened out, of course, by 1918 when he returned, but by then there would be another crisis, which we'll get to. But George was not the only game in town, of course. Uh, there was another man, probably as well known for making beer in New York's area, although he wasn't as successful. He was Jacob Rupert, or rather Jacob Rupert Jr. For his father, Rupert Sr. Jacob uh, Rupert Sr. had a brewery in Turtle Bay, which is uh, now in the East uh, 30s, I mm-hmm. think. I think, it was, I think they opened up in the around the 1860s, maybe during or after the Civil War. He, yeah, so Jr. apprenticed in his father's brewery, and then eventually, when he got old enough to start his own brewery, he opened one literally next door to George Arrett's brewery up in Yorksville. Because uh, beers of a feather flock together. There's an apocryphal story, which I can't even imagine is a real, is a real story, but it shows the ambition behind uh, Rupert Jr. here. Apparently, Rupert Sr. was bragging to his son and said, Jacob, my ambition was to sell 5,000 barrels of beer in a year, and I did it. And then Jr. turned to father and said, Pop, pop. (laughs) It was an earlier time. (laughs) My ambition is to sell 5,000 barrels of beer a day. And sure enough, he would eventually do this and far more, in fact. So Rupert's also had a huge success with his brewery here in Yorkville, in the Upper East Side today. Based on the family reputation, Rupert also was very, very wealthy from this. Rupert Jr. even became an elected official. He dabbled a little bit in uh, politics. He was a favored son of Tammany Hall. He was even elected to four terms to the U.S. House of Representatives. Like, that is a powerful man. I don't know if we would have too many beer meisters who would uh, be elected today. He also had a sumptuous home on Fifth Avenue and an upstate mansion as well. Really lived the glamorous life. By the turn of the century, Rupert Jr. took a new interest, a sort of a new marketing opportunity, if you will, that would change the face of sports forever and would certainly change the face of New York forever because in 1915, he bought a struggling baseball team by the name of the New York Yankees, bought them for $480,000 total. In terms of beer, he would, he would, of course, use sports as a very clever way of cross-promotion for and, all these things together. And not the only one. Today, we unite them so closely, you know, like you, you, you can't have, you can't watch a Super Bowl, for instance, without seeing hundreds of beer commercials. This way, Jacob Rupert could get his name into sports pages. So every day, his name would appear in, in, in newspapers and because his beer was named after him. It was free advertising. These are two primary examples of New York brewers that were in Manhattan. However, there was a parallel industry going on right across the water in the independent city of Brooklyn. Yes. So give me a few examples of some of the brewers that were, were making their name at this time, because they're not names really that like roll off our tongue 
today because a lot of them didn't quite make it out well, of the pool. Well, the thing you have to remember is that, like you said earlier, Greg, you know, most of the breweries that existed in the 1800s up to really the turn of the, the 20th century were kind of the equivalent today of, say, a coffee shop that roasted its own coffee. Right. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it wasn't a product that traveled quite yet because it wasn't of the processes. It was a very local thing. But again, Brooklyn, North Brooklyn in particular, Bushwick certainly was the epicenter, but Williamsburg also was where all the German Americans congregated. By the way, this area was called the Eastern District. This is sort of the 19th century old name before before consolidation sort of like eradicated that name. Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and Bushwick comprised the quote Eastern District. And the uh, axis, if you will, for beer was along Bushwick Avenue. So it was once called Brewer's Row. You had a number of breweries, in fact, about two dozen. But again, most of these were very small operations. Um, And by this time, this area is heavily industrial. It's very industrial. It's growing. It's a big area. So a lot of German-Americans settled in what is today Bushwick East Williamsburg, Bed-Stuy. Mm-hmm. Sort of the epicenter is the kind of where Woodhull Hospital is today. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, and what's the, J- the, what's the cross streets of that? Uh, that would be Broadway and Flushing. Okay. And if you take that and stretch out over, say, an area of 10 blocks, there were a good one to two dozen breweries. Again, most of these breweries were fairly small. However... About three or four were pretty big, and you can still see the traces of some of them today. So the buildings are still, some of the buildings still exist. There are a few buildings left. Uh, Probably the most notable one is the Huber, later Hittleman Brewery. Mm -hmm. This is off the Montrose L train stop. Okay. And so if any of you uh, like to go to that area where there's a lot of cool graffiti, you're going (laughs) to see this really big red brick building, and it's going to say Hittleman bottling works on the side. That was the Huber Hittleman Brewery. Uh, What was really significant about this is not only was it one of the big breweries in the late 18 and early 1900s, Mr. Huber, he was a very prominent philanthropist. He was one of the early backers of BAM. And oh, it's kind the, of, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It is. Okay. But more interestingly is that the, the brewery is kind of come full circle in a way because today it is a sort of a ramshackle building, but it's being turned into a concert venue where there will be plenty of beer served. And it's also um, home to a lot of artist studios. Mm-hmm. And right around the corner is the Anchored Inn where, of course, you can sip some suds. <laughs> and in the shadow of the brewery. And these buildings are fairly ornate, right? I mean, from what I recall, the early breweries, the actual They kind of built their little castles. Unfortunately, the more elaborate portions of the brewery are long gone. Sure. Um, The office for the Hittleman Brewery does still stand on the corner. You can, it's got kind of an interesting little rounded entry. And of course, you'll see the smokestacks that have the the brewery logos. And what corner was that? Uh, We're talking Meserol Street, Bushwick Avenue, that area. So give me a couple other names of brewers that were existing around this time. Well, of course, the big one, obviously, is the Liebman Brewery. Uh, Liebman gave us Rheingold Beer. They were one of the last breweries to close in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. in the mid-70s. There was also the Tromers Brewery, which was located out near the Broadway Junction subway stop today. 
They were known for, they were essentially kind of one of the first brew pubs. Um, and then, of course, there is also uh, the Excelsior, later King's Brewery. They weren't in Bushwick. They were in Bed-Stuy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really interesting about them is they were apparently the first brewery in New York to can beer in the late 1930s. Mm. Wait, 1930s? Yes, wow. 1935. Uh, unfortunately, canning wasn't quite uh, the art it is today. And within 10 years, they had gone bankrupt. Mm. The remains of the King's Brewery by 1948 was a blighted wreck. According to the Brooklyn Eagle, which ran a picture of the blighted brewery, mm-hmm. uh, it was quote, a headquarters for boy gangsters who meet there to plan forays into the Bedford-Stuyvesant area. You know, we're talking about a block-long facility. It's four stories tall. Um, You know, this is kind of like probably... They were probably doing like West Side Story stuff before West Side Story was around. Um, Probably a little bit more dangerous than that, Scott. You've watched too many musicals. Yeah, well, what can I tell you? But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. We've we've now talked in length here about the people who've made the beer and where they made it, even a little bit of how they stored it and things like that. But we haven't talked about where people are drinking it at this time. The Germans didn't just bring over beer. They brought over a new idea of venue in which to enjoy the beer. And that, of course, as we all know, is the, the idea beer of garden. The, the beer garden. A European idea that that existed, of course, for many years before it came. It was brought over to the United States. To contrast, before I get into this, before the 1850s, if you wanted to drink in New York City, you had very precise options. I guess that's the sort of politic way of saying it here. Essentially, many of the places were hole in the walls, let's be honest. Places that were associated with a lot of vice and a lot of crime. These kind of places would continue, of course. I'm not saying they were they wouldn't be eradicated at all, but they would be joined by other ways of drinking. Nothing encapsulates this bad reputation of old taverns quite like the idea of a stale beer dive. I don't know if you have heard of a stale beer dive. It, it was in Five Points and other really, really depressed neighborhoods where the, the dregs of beers at, an, uh, at another tavern would be collected. And then at this sort of, usually it would be a basement type of place, um, would be sold for like, you know, a little amount for a nickel. So it's the dregs, the stale beer. It, so, it sort of leaves you with a not so fresh feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say. <laughs> and then in comparison, one of the oldest taverns in New York City, um, McSorley's old ale house. It even has ale in the name from the 1850s. This was an Irish-owned bar, but it's a decidedly different feel than what would soon come after with the places who that would sell lagers and would be more German-oriented. With the beer garden, New Yorkers could actually, if they wanted to, invite the family. They would often be outdoor spaces there would be music playing. Civic organizations would meet uh, in beer gardens. There were v- really desirable escapes. It sort of legitimized drinking in public. It, it really did, actually. And also, it was just an escape from tenement living. At this time, would be some of the worst housing in New York City history at this time, with thousands of people being crammed into tenement buildings. So there was something so appealing about the idea of a beer hall where you, it would be festive, it would be energetic, and you could also enjoy beer that many of these people remember drinking back in their homeland or that their parents drank. 
And if you think about it, it's kind of not that dissimilar from today, where we're all living in shoeboxes, and <laughs> sooner or later we get claustrophobic, and then we need to go out. Mm-hmm. And where do we go? We well, go to a bar. Well, beer gardens are kind of making a little bit of a comeback. They are. In, they in have New York. made a huge comeback. Naturally, these were popular all over the city, but in particular on the Bowery, because the Bowery was already known for all sorts of drinking establishments. The most famous beer garden in Manhattan opened in 1858. It was called the Atlantic Gardens. Do you know where it was? It was at the foot of the Manhattan Bridge. Now, did I not mention this location just a little bit earlier in our show? Sure enough, the old Bull's Head Tavern, which is where cattlemen would bring their steer and cows down to Manhattan and put them in pens here as they went in and enjoyed an ale. Now the Atlantic Gardens was here and a whole new group of people were now coming here for enjoyment. It was a huge place. The New York Times called it, quote, the center of German life in the city. Brewery owners would subsidize these taverns and and beer gardens um, and would make specific deals so that these places would just sell their kind of beer. So it wouldn't be like today where you go in and there's 400 different taps. In most cases, you would have only one. You might have like a little bit of choice. Some brewers got even more inventive, like William Ulmer. He, of course, was a well-known Brooklyn brewer of the time. He opened an outdoor park in Brooklyn, near around today's Gravesend area, right on the waterfront, called Ulmer Park. It attracted thousands of people each summer. It was a place with a picnic ground and a bowling alley, even. One of the most festive areas in Brooklyn in the late 19th century. And all with, of course, all the Ulmer beer that you could drink. A little bit later in 1910, up in the neighborhood of Astoria in Queens would open Bohemian Hall, Now, which is a similar kind of a beer garden. The only reason I mention that is because it's still it open. It's still there, yes. It's still there and it's still hopping, needless to say. Um, one of the oldest drinking establishments in New York City and certainly one of the oldest in Queens. Now, all this frivolity, all everyone heading out to beer gardens, everyone enjoying this new the frothy... The beer is flowing like wine, <laughs> the oompa bands are playing. Exactly. But not everyone is happy with this, obviously. No. The, the temperance movement begins around this time. Now, the temperance movement, of course, was associated with a lot of uh, moral causes because there were a lot of people who were abusing liquor, of course, so I don't mean to demean it in any way, but there was also a little bit of a subtext of nationalism, even racism to some of this, because beers were at this time still associated with particular groups, with it particular was nationalities. It drink. At first, it kind of had a positive effect on beer because it was seen as less evil as other liquors. Some people might even think that today. However, the temperance movement did grow to be quite an annoyance for the beer brewers and soon a threat to the entire industry. Beer brewers would fight back. They would highlight links to the founding fathers because, of course, George Washington. Sam Adams, of course, he was brewing beer. Despite the fact that it was, I would say, an immigrant-driven industry because, you know, most of them were recent immigrants or the sons of immigrants, there was this real attempt to make this an American experience more than other liquors, um, which would still maintain a sort of an international or European branding to them, if you will. That's a modern word. So by 1880, around that time, Manhattan was producing 1.5 million barrels of beer, which is a lot of suds. Brooklyn was producing 1.1 million barrels of beer. But. <laughs> There's oh. always a but. 
There's a but. And here's, a, here's the problem that New York brewers had. There were so many customers in New York and Brooklyn that were drinking the beer that there was never a need for these major brewers to expand outside of the metropolitan area. Meanwhile, brewers such as Anheuser-Busch in St. Louis, who had a much smaller market, were really forced to look beyond the city to gain new customers. And since they were really developing their business model, if you will, by the Very late 1960s, business people. during the time of the expansion of the railroad, these Midwestern brewers actually strengthened their grip in the United States, by the time of the refrigerated rail cars, where they could actually like ship beer for long distances, these companies, the Midwestern companies, the Pabst's, the Coors, the Millers, the Anheuser-Busch's, they were in a better position to greatly expand. And of course, once you've expanded your product, you've also expanded your reputation. They also just happen to make really good beer. The turn of the 20th century, you saw a wave of consolidation in the brewing industry. As well as every other industry, of course. And so a lot of the smaller brewers in New York just could not compete with the regional brewers and the national brewers. So you have an industry that is, at least from New York standards, already on the decline. Right. And so what it didn't need is for prohibition to happen, which that did come along with the Volstead Act and then finally the 18th Amendment in 1920, which banned the sale of alcohol entirely. So this, of course, ruined many brewers, also creating an underworld, an underground speakeasy market that leaned heavily upon the production of hard liquors, like bathtub gin, other types of things like this, which could be easily distilled in very small, secretive creepy little environments. Although there were some breweries in New York City that, if rumor has it, brewed bootleg beer. I have another story about a brewery in Bushwick where a dry squad that you know went around hunting, sniffing out these illegal breweries, they discovered a garage that they entered, that they went into, was full of empty trucks and empty kegs which they thought was sort of odd. There was an underground pipe that led from that empty garage to another building, which then led to another building where they brewed the beer. And so apparently it traveled through this pipe where they were then able to It's kind of like the modern day equivalent of like the tunnels (laughs) underneath the Mexican border with the drugs. (laughs) No, but I mean, this was, I mean, this is kind of an interesting story because even, you know, the, the, you know, Anheuser-Busch had to deal with the fact that during prohibition, suddenly they could not sell what they made their money on. And so what a lot of brewers tried to do was sell what is called near beer. Others of them, uh, tried to diversify to sell things like malt, ice cream, ice cream, soda, yeast, breads. But the fact of the matter is, very few of them experienced any success. But there was at least one brewery in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. Bushwick, as a matter of fact, that did succeed and survive prohibition by selling near beer. Really? And by the way, near beer is, to be technical, 0.5% alcohol. You're not getting, it's not intoxicating. Essentially. And most of it, to be honest, really did not taste very good. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was, as we said, there was one brewer in Bushwick 
that did survive prohibition by brewing near beer. And that was Tromer's Brewery, which is located out near the Broadway Junction subway stop Mm -hmm. today. Now, Tromer's, part of their success with this near beer is they were able to pair it in places like Coney Island with hot dog stands. And Mm. so people would often associate hot dogs and near beer around this time. And they were able to get away with selling this near beer in those places quite successfully. Well, the end of Prohibition arrived finally in 1933, but America had kind of changed by this time. Products were expected to have a national distribution. You know, reputations of certain products by this time traveled around, and all these places had national marketing campaigns. It was also the rise of packaging and bottling innovations. And you couldn't be a brewer and staying local anymore in this this time period. No, at this point, we're finally seeing, if not national, certainly regional beers. Now, some of these larger breweries were still in action, but they had a rocky future ahead of them, needless to say. For instance, the heirs of George Errett, for instance, sold out to Jacob Rupert, then decided they wanted to get back into the business, moved to Brooklyn for a decade, but then sold their entire remaining breweries to Schlitz, which of course is still with us. Whatever happened to Jacob Rupert and Rupert Spear? Um, he died in 1939, but of course his heirs d- tried to keep it going. They did not do a, a very good job. Yeah, Rupert uh, continued to exist as a brewery up until, I believe, the early 60s. They cha- They actually dropped the name Rupert from their beers and instead uh, introduced uh, Knickerbocker. Knickerbocker beer. Right, so they were known, they were known then in the 20th century as Knickerbocker beer. Some people may have heard of that. Today And in 1958, the New York Times reported that uh, the Rupert Brewery, in um, essentially an act of desperation, decided they needed a new beer. Mm-hmm. They decided they needed an ale. And this ale was going to be, according to the New York Times, targeted for men only. Because beer had sort of been, the tastes of beer by this time had been kind of watered down. They were like a little bit more bland in flavor. So this new attempt was for men only. So I imagine it must have been a far more masculine, robust tasting beer. Well, according to uh, newspaper (laughs) advertisements at the time, uh, the beer was, quote, a great new ale with a brawny, robust flavor (laughs) to satisfy a man's taste. Because, of course, you know, speaking as a man, if it's not brawny and robust, I'm not interested in it. Absolutely. Unfortunately... Get your non-robust beer out of my face. It it didn't work, and before 10 years was up, uh, the Rupert Brewery had gone under, and they sold uh, Knickerbocker to to Liebman, who was our big brewer at, at Rheingold, right? So he was in Bushwick, right? So Rheingold, I think, is sort of the a leading example of here of a New York brewer having some success it's in the nineteenth 19- quintessential post-war Eisenhower New York beer, but really one of the very few that really made an impact in any kind of national way. They really did have a national identity. You had the Miss Rheingold contests. <laughs> Essentially, it was a beauty pageant tied into the beer. As, quote, the New Yorker said in 1957, in what American election is the greatest number of votes cast? The answer is, of course, the presidential election. In what American election is the next greatest number of votes cast? The answer is the annual Miss Rheingold contest. So this was just one of all sorts of different new ways to promote beer. 
to men and women. By the way, the very first Ms. Rheingold was the an actress by the name of Jinx Falkenberg um, in ah, 1940. Yes, Jinx. How could I forget her? She was actually a talk show hostess later in her career. But they also started, this is the 1950s, so they started sponsoring television shows. I do think it's really interesting to note that they sponsored, in the 1950s, the Nat King Cole show. Many advertisers shied away from a show that was an African-American on television performing, you know, whatever he wanted with a, a roster of special guests. Rheingold actually didn't shy away from that. They tried all sorts of different innovative ways to get to different communities uh, to sell their product. Um, they were also, by the way, the official beer of the New York Mets, which I think is kind of funny because this is the company that Knickerbocker and the old Rupert name had been sold to. But the fact is, is all of these beer brewers are on life support by the 50s or 60s. Yeah, sales were declining by the 1960s. I do want to add that Schaefer's, uh, I had mentioned Frederick and Maximilian. Their brewery was in Williamsburg on uh, Kent Avenue. On Kent Avenue, right next to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Yes. Is where it was. They did expand also nationwide and they had a lot of luck. They were even steadily, even into the 1970s, like they were still a, a leading brand of beer. But by 1976, they, yeah, had moved, I, they had moved out of New York entirely for a variety of reasons. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to leave New York in the 1970s. They had, uh, so they had moved out entirely by this time. Believe it or not, by the mid 70s, there were no brewers at all in New York City. They had all either been incorporated into larger... For instance, you can still buy Schaefer's beer today, but it's um, that brand is controlled by the Pabst Brewing Company. So there was a period of, a, of several years, at least eight years, where there were no brewers in New York. I mean, who knows what people were brewing in their apartments at, at this particular time, but there, was, there were no professional breweries. Um, I mean, the death of an industry... It I mean, was. It, in a city that was already incredibly blighted, this was just one more notch on the wall. And especially for central Brooklyn, you know, you have the Liebman Brewery closing in 76, 1977. There are vast swaths of Bushwick were blighted. This is really kind of the death knell. And what's kind of interesting today is that if you walk down Flushing Avenue, uh, right around the corner from the rec room bar, there was a big playground and a school. That was the site of the Liebman Brewery. It took up several blocks. Wow. And it's all gone. Much like the Kingsbury and Bed-Stuy, it's the site of a playground and an elementary school today. So the structures themselves are gone, but you, Long can, gone. you can sort of... You kind of see the scars mm -hmm. on the urban landscape, mm -hmm. if you will. But I want to leave the story here on an upswing. A small seed But then returned. the 1980s <laughs> happened. Well, you know, you can say that about New York. Then the 1980s happened, and something weird happened in the 1980s. In a little corner of, depending on who you talk to, Soho and or Tribeca. Yes. Uh, this, uh, in 1984, yes. um, th there was this British businessman uh, named Richard Wrigley decided to open a brew pub at the corner of Thompson and Watts in a transformer station, a, an old Con Edison transformer station. It was called the Manhattan Brewing Company. He was a very he was a wealthy businessman, so he was able to stake a claim here and create something kind of unique, very novelty. That was sort of the key of, of what he was doing. It's like, well, no one else is doing this. He even shipped in kettles from the Swiss Alps to brew some of the beer. And apparently at one time they were even uh, brewing a porter that was based on George Washington's personal beer recipe. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the place was open for a really long time. 
time. And they right? started bottling beer in the in 1987. So in a way, this is the dawning of the microbrewery. In the 80s and 90s, these small little microbreweries began to crop up. I think that we should mention one that I think is the, one of the most important of the modern breweries, which is the Brooklyn Brewery, which yes. started in 1987. The uh, Brooklyn Brewery was uh, headed up by a gentleman named Garrett Oliver, who was the brewmaster at the Manhattan Brewing Company. Oh, so he'd gotten the inspiration from his previous occupation. Yeah, so he knew what he was doing. He didn't just decide to like show up one day and start making beer. But yeah, it's kind of interesting, the fact that the roots of the New York beer renaissance started in Manhattan before quickly mm-hmm. uh, decamping to Brooklyn. They moved in 1996, in fact, to an old Mozzo factory. And that's actually Oy. where they still are today in, they are. in Williamsburg. It's a place where you can still open. They have a beer garden. And they you can, do. You can sample their wares and you can do, do tours at the Brooklyn Brewery. I'll mention one final place um, called the Heartland Brewery. And the reason I mention it, because I, th- I think that if you're traveling to New York, if you don't live here, and you go to any of the big high traffic touristy areas, you'll see a Heartland Brewery like South Street Seaport and Times Square. They began production in 1995. Okay, Their beer, if I am not mistaken, is brewed, at least some of it is brewed in Clinton Hill at the mm-hmm. Greenpoint Brewery. This is not open to the public. It is essentially just a brewing operation and all of their beer goes to the Heartland Brewery. And of course, much like anything else uh, that's made in Brooklyn today, God knows how many hipsters are <laughs> brewing microbrew that's going to show up at their friend's rooftop party or at a local bar. You know, how many people at this very moment, because we are situated right here in Bushwick, how many people right now are brewing their own little micro craft beers as we speak within feet I, I don't know that, but I can certainly <laughs> tell you that if you wanted to go out and get a beer brewed in Brooklyn, you would not have to walk more than a couple blocks to <laughs> my favorite place, the Bodega Bar, which mm-hmm. is on the corner of St. Nick and Troutman. And also, if you want to get a little more historical, if you go down to Bushwick Avenue, the heart of Bushwick, you're going to see a lot of mansions. <laughs> this is where the brewer barons built their mansions. But, uh, and it's still existing row they of houses. Still stand okay. today, although, of course, they've been chopped up to apartments, they've been painted over, heavily modified. And to be clear, this is probably one of the, with the exception of the brewer, the brewery that you had mentioned earlier, one of the few places that you can actually go in New York and see a sort of vestige. It is still essentially old... one of the few remaining landmarks that has any connection to the brewing history of Brooklyn. We're experiencing a little bit of a renaissance where you we can are. visit places that are tied and connected to New York's original beer industries, and then within steps, visit one of several places that are currently brewing their own beer in this neighborhood. You can now enjoy a Brooklyn beer, for example, and then if you want, uh, walk it off by walking along Bushwick Avenue and taking a look at some of the mansions where the brewer barons used to live. Now for some images of some of these old breweries, some of these old houses, please visit the blog BoweryBoysPodcast.com where I'll have further information, some sources that we have used, including some great websites that have had very specific information about all of these different brewers. Um, I mean, it's just like once you go down the rabbit hole of looking at this information, it's you kind of You can literally spend all day surfing really the web finding information about this stuff. As I mentioned, Scott is an excellent photographer. I've, I've used some of his pictures on the blog before. 
Scott is actually going to have a show in August in Brooklyn, correct? That's right. It's going to be a, uh, I'm showing some of my recent photography at a uh, little gallery called Sweet and Shiny. It's off Knickerbocker Avenue. Now, this is, of course, this show is recording this in July of 2012. So if you're listening to this beyond that um, and you can't make that show, you can visit Scott's website. Yes. uh, My website is nyergis.com. That's N-Y-E-R-G-E-S. And there will probably be a link on the Bowery's Boy website. There will. Nobody can spell my last name. (laughs) You can also visit the Bowery Boys on Facebook. Thank you very much for joining us on this journey through New York Spear history. This intoxicating history. Tom will be back next month. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Bottoms up. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now is the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com.